week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 2008, having been retired for more than three years, Lance Armstrong announced his comeback to professional cycling. Armstrong had won the tour every year since 1999 and decided to bow out of professional cycling while wearing the yellow jersey as winner of the tour for the seventh time. Only four riders had previously won the tour in their last participation in the race. Armstrong made a speech on the Champs-Élysées having won his final Tour de France. To the people who don't believe in cycling, the cynics and the skeptics, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry that you can't dream big. I'm sorry you don't believe in miracles. But this is one hell of a race. This is a great sporting event and you should stand around and believe it. You should believe in these athletes and you should believe in these people. I'll be a fan of the Tour de France for as long as I live. And there are no secrets. This is a hard sporting event and hard work wins it. So vive la Tour forever. But after three years of retirement, having watched the 2008 Tour de France won by Carlos Sastre, Armstrong began to get itchy feet. In John Wilcoxon's book, Lance, The Making of the World's Greatest Champion, Armstrong is reported to have said this about a possible return to the Tour in 2009. I'll kick their asses. The Tour was a bit of a joke this year. I've got nothing against Sastre or Christian van de Velde. Christian's a nice guy, but finishing fifth in the Tour de France? Come on. So Armstrong decided to return to the sport, although he announced his comeback as an initiative to raise awareness of cancer rather than to win the Tour. He said the following, I have decided to race my bicycle again. With this global cancer awareness campaign, we feel that by racing the bicycle all over the world, beginning in Australia, ending in France at the Global Summit, it is the best way to promote this initiative. It's the best way to get the word out. I will race in 2009 with Astana, reuniting myself with Johan Brunil. While we looked at other teams and we talked with other teams, as a friend and as a partner and as someone I can really trust on every little decision, I could not imagine racing against him or without him. So Johan and I will be together in 2009 and my first race will be in Australia, the Tour Down Under. Armstrong had prepared for his comeback by informing the UCI and submitting himself for possible out-of-competition doping controls. A rider must be part of this system six months in advance of taking part in any race, but Armstrong had given only five months notice before the Tour Down Under. However, the UCI didn't seem to mind, announcing the following. The aim of Article 77 at the time of its introduction in 2004 can be better achieved through careful application of the current methods of the anti-doping program rather than by the strict application of a time period. The UCI can confirm that Lance Armstrong has and will be the subject of very strict monitoring throughout the period running up to his return to the peloton. This decision has been made after a careful assessment of the situation, taking into account both the applicable regulations and the imperatives of the fight against doping, which is the UCI's number one priority. Armstrong had also announced upon his comeback that he would be submitting himself voluntarily to an independent testing program which would be organised by anti-doping expert Don Caitlin. This was in order to finally prove once and for all that he was racing clean, but several months later there were no tests carried out. Armstrong said in December 2008, it's a tough thing to organise, but we will make it happen. All the stuff we said we were going to do will happen. But shortly after, the programme was abandoned because it had indeed been too difficult to organise. It's somewhat inevitable that after a wee break, Killian, um, we had to talk about Lance Armstrong this time because it's it's been one of the people, along with Tyler Hamilton and uh, Michele Ferrari, who've been in, in everybody's lips while we've been away, haven't they? Yeah, I, I've been jealous of listening to the the regular velocast shows of you and Scott nattering on about Armstrong, I, I, I felt I felt left out, so I, I thought I'd get in on the action. But um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it's 
Armstrong's always the guy that that brings cycling um, conversation to, to people that don't normally talk about it. You know, so last few weeks, constantly, you know, around the the water fountain and work and and just just everywhere, people are you know finally talking to me about cycling, which is something they don't regularly do. Um, not not that this is an enjoyable scenario where where that has come about, but uh, like I remember at the time. When, when this happened in 2008, when Armstrong announced that he was coming back, I remember being really excited because uh, ju- just to give you maybe a little pot of history of, of my own, of um, ha- how I became I- interested in cycling. So we, we talked before like um, that 1993 was kind of the first Tour de France that I started watching properly, and uh, which coincidentally was Armstrong's first Tour de France. But... Um, you know, you know, I watched it for a few years and my dad was mad into it and, you know, he used to sit me down and we used to record the, the Channel 4 half hours and, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I watched it until kind of Armstrong started winning and I watched the 99 tour and I probably watched the 2000 tour as well. But at that stage, um, not to make you feel too bad about your own age, John, but I, I was kind of, um, I was, I was nearly finished school. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so, you know, I started kind of, you know, drinking and, and, and going out and, and, and mucking about. And, and uh, I started getting really into fo- football at that stage as well. And, you know, I kind of played football to a relatively high level in Ireland. Uh-huh. Um, I lost interest just for, for a number of reasons. I lost interest. So it was a long number of years where I, I didn't know anything really about cycling. And, and, you know, all these guys came along like Basso and Valverde and, Evans and I didn't know who these guys were because I, I just completely lost touch. Mm-hmm. And it was actually only in 2008 that I that I, I kind of rediscovered the whole thing. And funnily enough, it was because I was in Thailand. Um, I was away on this remote island in Thailand, and there was this bookshop close to us. That, <laughs> and the only thing that was in the whole bookshop that was in English was a, a, an issue of Pro Cycling magazine. So I was stuck for something to read and I was kind of going a bit stir crazy. So I bought it. And actually, funnily enough, it also had Lance Armstrong on the cover. And this was before he had announced his comeback. I don't know. They just had some interview with him. Yeah. And um, so I bought it and I read it. And, and, and I kind of realized, you know, I really miss this. You know, I, I really enjoy all these all these uh, stories and races. And, and at the time, the Tour de France was going on. And it, uh, coincidentally as well, it was one of the few things that was on the telly in the evening in English. So, or, or was it night? It was kind of midnight every day. And, uh, I, you know, I watched Carlos Sastra attack and go about the rest, and I didn't know who Carlos Sastra was. You know, I didn't know who the Schlecks were. And, and uh, I mean, one thing that's been proven is you get really annoyed when you don't know stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, I did. I, I kind of, um, my, my girlfriend got really annoyed with me because even as I was still over in Thailand, <laughs> I was wasting money on the internet looking up Wikipedia, finding out who these guys were. And I kind of, I, I started filling my head even before I came home from that holiday full of uh, you know the, the the history of these guys and 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 i just i i just completely threw myself back into it and uh so, so when when i got home and a couple of months later and all of a sudden our, the news came out that armstrong was coming back i thought it was great because uh you know by the time i had stopped stopped kind of being interested in it in the in the early parts of uh this century and mm-hmm. uh, i hadn't i was too young to be awash with cynicism and get bogged down by the doping stories because I just I, I wasn't really aware of them you know so by the time I came back to the sport in 2008 
uh, obviously I was old enough to to know about these things, but I I didn't know about them. So I I had to go and inform myself. And, uh, you know, especially when you're younger and back in the in the early 90s and mid 90s, you know, there was no Internet. There was no cycling news. There was no Velo Nation. There was no Internet forums full of, uh, you know, murky rumors and information you know the only info you got about this stuff was what phil liggett was telling you on the telly which was yeah. not and uh whatever they decided to put in cycling weekly which was probably relatively little as well so you know e- even if you were interested in the doping side of things at that stage it was very hard to get your information on but uh, but, but anyway so when armstrong was coming back you know i th- i i uh i thought you know here here was a name from the past of the period of cycling that I knew about and all of a sudden he's coming back so I was really excited about it but then you know I started reading um, from Lance to Landis and I got I got my hands on an English version of LA Confidential and I read that and it, it just it just becomes undeniable and I, I've always thought there's kind of three types of people when it comes to talking about Armstrong and knowing about him there's the, there's the kind of Joe Soap on the street who knows who Armstrong is uh, maybe knows a bit about the doping rumors, nothing too detailed, mm-hmm. but uh, or, or you know doesn't know a whole lot at all and kind of thinks he's a hero and and that's fine. They're kind of uninformed and you know they don't really know the full story and that's okay. That's one kind of person. Then there's the other extreme, which is pe- people who know all about you know the USADA case and and uh, you know the origins of Armstrong's start in the USA so I can get all that kind of carry on and have read Lance to Landis and know the full story and have made up you know and, and know that this is this is a guy who has been very dishonest throughout his career mm-hmm. and then there's the middle ground who are informed but decide that Armstrong is still a hero and you know mostly because of his efforts with cancer awareness and all that but those people I can't understand. I can't understand how you can inform yourself, read these books, you know, listen to these guys who who are clearly telling the truth at this stage. They're broken men telling the truth and still find reason to believe that Armstrong is a man to hold up on a pedestal. I can't understand that. The thing is, I mean, they're, they're broken men and they're all telling the same truth. Yeah. And I mean, you could say if, if there was one one account, you know, in isolation, then you could disregard it. But there are accounts from a huge variety of sources now which are giving out the same information. You actually said something really interesting during that, and I've got to say, I love podcasting with you because I just kind of sit back and drink tea and let you talk. <laughs> but... I mean, you, you hit on a really interesting point that had never occurred to me before, where you said, you know, during the, the 90s and, you know, the early noughties, it was really hard to get information in the way that we can now. You know, we've got on the, the homepage of the site daily a different piece of information about the corruption of Heinver Bruggen and uh, Pat McQuaid. Yeah. And it's it's all easy to come by, you know, it's all um, out in the public domain. And that's, I think, why the UCI is failing now. It can't grasp the fact that it could control the flow of information in the 90s. You know, yeah. because it controlled the access to the sport. Exactly. But information is now free, and that's why, you know, it just doesn't work anymore for Pat and Hein. No, and, and it, it is this, like, it, ha- it has become a complete PR failure from the UCI's point of view. And, and yeah, like you said, they don't control the message anymore. People can... Uh, 
you know, bloggers can go away and, and kind of try and find out their, you know, get their own um, interviews and, and, and look up, you know, online databases and, and you know, it, there's just an online um, newspaper archives and, and all of this kind of stuff that's just, it was never available before. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, the volume of evidence and information that is now available, that was never available 20 years ago, is, uh, it's, it's just overwhelming. You know, it, it, even the snippets that yourself and Scott are putting up, like, I mean, it, you know, you know, the, the, so, some of those are kind of, you know, they're almost forgotten at this stage. You know, people c- kind of lose sight that those things happened. But, you know, just going to the site every day, you're like, Christ, you know, yeah, they did that as well. And they did that. And my God, what are we dealing with here? Now, Armstrong came back and in his first year, um, his first year back after getting fat and running marathons or getting muscly and running marathons or whatever. Yeah. Um, still managed third. Now, we've got to assume that they were all still um, essentially performing in the way that people were in, you know, the secret race by, by Tyler Hamilton and Dan uh, Dan Foyle. Um, it's still quite impressive as a bike racer. You know, it, it's not a level playing field, but whatever you can say about the man, he was a determined bugger and, you know, clearly still is. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely, and and he he, um, I think that's something Hamilton says in his book that you know he's regardless of any doping and uh, and that side of things, I think Hamilton still maintains a, a kind of a weird respect for him that he was this tenacious, unrelenting monster of an athlete that you know was able to to, to do these. Obviously, he 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 doped to do it, but. Uh, you know, it, it's it's incredibly difficult to know what would have happened uh, if, if nobody was on dope. Actually, David Walsh did an interview with Tyler Hamilton in the Sunday Times last week. I don't know whether you read that. And he asked, yeah. he asked Tyler Hamilton, uh, how many tours do you think Armstrong would have won if nobody was doping? And Hamilton sat back, thought about it and said, I don't know, maybe one, which is, which is alarming, you know, because uh, there is this kind of myth that, that uh, you know, Armstrong was strong anyway, yada, yada, he probably would have won all seven, everybody else was doping, but, you know, for Hamilton to say that he would have only won one, or, or to, to suggest or guess, that that's kind of alarming. To be so, honest, that's one more than I would have said. Yeah, maybe so, yeah, I mean, because he was just so not a tour winner before. Uh, you know, the, the, thing that, the thing that always strikes me, and we'll get onto one of my great heroes in the moment, in, in, in a moment, Greg Lamont, um, is I remember in, I think, the 94 tour, uh, Armstrong being passed by Indurain, uh, like he was, you know, me being passed by Armstrong. There was just no competition. Indurain wasn't there, suddenly he was there, and then he was gone. Yeah. And I always understood how the the weight loss through cancer helped Armstrong's climbing. I never understood how it turned him into, you know, the best time trialist the world had ever seen at that point. That just didn't work in my head. Yeah, yeah, and and sorry, so, something else just to say about um, Paul Kimmage, the the Paul Kimmage scenario. Um, you know, obviously the UCI are, are have have uh, decided to, uh, well, they've decided to sue him. I mean, I think it's a, it's a crazy decision. It's going That's to backfire. It's going to blow up in their face. Big it's thing. going to backfire terribly, especially now that Kimmage has a has a few bob that he can he can he can dip into to to help him with this. But it, it's it's going to be a mess for them. But, uh, you know, over this whole Armstrong thing, um, the reactions of 
journalists and and writers has has been interesting and you know there's a there's a lot of them have uh have have support you know they they've like uh, Rupert Guinness is an example of one he's an Australian journalist and he has written a series of articles where he's he's almost admitted his uh not com- complicity but his willingness to not question what was going on yeah um and and you know re- really um credit credit to him for for admitting this and and for saying you know I, I haven't I I haven't um maybe asked the right questions in the past but now this now it's time and you know we we need to change as journalists and you know it's very it's an admirable stance that he has he he has said this but you know i i think people are very quick to jump down the throats of journalists that that um haven't maybe asked difficult questions in the past because it, it was a very difficult scenario i think for journalists to to be in you know that that uh they're cycling journalists, you know. They, these are guys that are supposed to write about cycling, and and if if they all of a sudden are banned from press conferences, rightly or wrongly, um, you know, they have to go back to their editor and and the owner of their mag of their publisher, you know, their publisher, and say, look, <laughs> I can't do this article for you because I, I I'm banned from from that. You, you you know, that's very hard for them in yeah. a job. They're they're doing a job, and they need. They they need to be allowed to do their job, and if they write a particularly spiky article, and that affects their ability to make a living, you know that's a difficult decision for them to go. Okay, I am going to go down this route. But Paul Kimmage, on the other hand, you know, I I know he obviously he was a cyclist, and he 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 rode the Tour de France, which is unlike all cycling journalists. I would probably say I can't think of another one. Mm-hmm. And but you know, by the time Armstrong was coming along, and uh, uh, Pat McQuaid was president of UCI. You know, he was a sports journalist, which is, there's a big difference there. You know, Paul Kimmich could could go to these press conferences and ask the you know the prickly questions, and uh, you know, and and become subsequently banned. And he'll go, yeah, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to write the article anyway. Say that you didn't want to talk to me. And I'm going to go back to writing about golf or tennis or football. You know, it's yeah. no sweat off my back. You know, I, you, you know, I don't need you. Whereas the cycling journalists do need do need access there. And Paul Kimmich had also maneuvered himself into a into a position because he had been in the peloton and ridden the Tour de France, and he had been this unbelievably stern anti-doping writer. That if you didn't speak to him in these press conferences he would write the article about you anyway and and you know and he'd slate you yeah. for for not answering his questions and and then move on and not care and write about other sports you know so i i think you know i i have unbelievable respect for him but he was in a slightly different position than all of the cycling journalists over these years and it comes back to your your point that i was discussing earlier where um you know the uci were controlling the flow of information because they controlled the access of journalists to you know to the stars and to the managers and everybody, so you know, times are changing. And I, th- I mean, I think we really are at a pivotal point in the sport here, both in the way that journalists treat it, because the hard questions are being asked now, and in the way that you know the UCI or hopefully their replacement, because you know I'm, I'm convinced now they just need to go away and be replaced, will treat fans and journalists with more respect, and don't think you know they've got some kind of feudal right to rule the sport. Anyway. Let's move on to uh, to another American who who I find slightly less objectionable than Armstrong, uh, a piece about Greg LeMond. 
1983, Greg LeMond won the World Road Race Championships, becoming the first ever American to do so. On the 18th of October 1978, when LeMond was 17 years old, he wrote a to-do list. The list consisted of four things. The first was to win the Junior World Road Race Championships in 1979. The second was to win the Olympic Games Road Race in 1980. The third was to win the Professional World Road Race Championships by the time he was 22. And the fourth was to win the Tour de France by the time he was 25. LeMond wasted no time in ticking off items on the list, as he did indeed win the 1979 Junior Worlds title in Argentina. However, due to the Soviet war in Afghanistan, the USA decided to boycott the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow, thereby denying LeMond the chance of crossing off item number two. In Goodwood in 1982, aged just 21, LeMond came mighty close to achieving item number three, but was narrowly beaten by Giuseppe Cerrone. LeMond had to settle for a silver medal and second step on the podium with Cerrone on top and Sean Kelly in third. But in Altenrhein in 1983, LeMond had one last chance of winning the world's road race while he was still aged 22. He said the following about the race. The night before the Worlds, I was so nervous that I could barely sleep. I couldn't get anything out of my mind. At breakfast at the German hotel we were staying in, I ordered a pot of muesli, two hard-boiled eggs, bread and orange juice from room service. I ended up eating nothing but five bites of muesli and an apple. My stomach was in a knot. I went over to Cyril Guimar and said, I'm so nervous that I only slept four or five hours last night. I'm so exhausted this morning that I don't know how I'm going to do. And Guimar answered, Greg, you're going to do really well today. Before their best days, all great champions have a sleepless night because they know they can win. And LeMond did win. He had been aggressive all day and when, with just one 15km lap to go, he found himself in a break with just one other rider, the Spaniard Faustino Ruperez. LeMond attacked and soloed home for the win more than a minute clear of Adri van der Poel and Stephen Roach. He had ticked off item number three on the list, but wasn't 100% satisfied with his victory. He said, my only disappointment was that the victory was totally ignored by the American press and public. Back home, hardly anybody heard of it. Maybe it got a little paragraph in some papers, maybe not. In Europe, the world champion is on page one of his country's papers, and even on page one of other countries as well. But at that time, nobody in the US cared that an American had become world champion. I find it really strange that after, um, you know, all of the, the trick and Le Mans shenanigans and all the lawsuits and, uh, you know, the... The threats of black blackmail over Lamond being you know sexually abused as a child, that Lamond actually comes out as the one who can really hold his head high in in you know in the field of American cycling. I think. Yeah, I mean it, it's kind of it's perverse that there's been three American winners of the tour, and yet Greg Lamond is the only American winner of the tour right now. Yeah, that the other two have been stripped, and it's like it, I, I think it's a common thing that to throw at Greg LeMond that he's bitter because these two Americans, I don't know, stole his thunder and he's no longer the only American winner of the Tour de France and that he's, he, for some reason, wanted to take these two other Americans down because he, he wanted that uh, that title. But that I don't think that's the case at all. And that's a very unfair thing to say about Greg LeMond. When Armstrong won his first Tour de France, you know, Greg LeMond was really supportive. He thought it was brilliant. Yeah. If you look back at any interviews at the time, he, he he thought it was fantastic, and it was only when uh, the it came out that Armstrong was working with Michele Ferrari that Le Mans tune changed, and he said, you know, that's he he started poking at Armstrong, saying you you shouldn't do that, you know, you should you should do this, you should do that, that this isn't good, and it's only then that 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 feud kind of started, which which has which 
you know, evolved into the, the Trek lawsuit and all that. And even at that point, though, he, he didn't actually say, you know, come right out and say you're doping. He just, he, he, in a very measured way, said, it's disappointing that you're working with Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Armstrong, we didn't talk about it the last time. Um, Jonathan Wachters calls Andrew Talansky the pit bull. Yeah. But I actually think there's only one pit bull in the history of cycling in recent years, and that's Lance Armstrong. Because Armstrong, as soon as he's even questioned, up until, you know, he he pretended to walk away from the USADA thing, um, <laughs> he, you know, he just attacks. Yeah. And what became a, a backstory, if you like, with Lamont being disappointed about the McKayley Ferrari thing, escalated into a really unpleasant and nasty to watch uh, lawsuit between Trek and. You know, Lamont being told to keep his mouth shut and undisclosed settlements out of court and that sort of thing. Um, but after all that, I, I've got to be—I mean, I've got to be honest. Lamont was one of my, my great heroes in the sport, and after he tailed off in '93-'94 and started sounding a bit bitter and whiny, I took that attitude as well. But as a, you know, as over the last couple of years, it's come round that actually he was just telling it like it was. My respect for him's grown again, and that kind of makes me happy as an old man that the heroes of my youth are, uh, are, are turning out to be okay folk. Going back to the to the to the race itself, um, I mentioned in the piece um, in 1982, Le Mans almost won. He did. He probably did something in 1982 that he he is remembered for. Probably he shouldn't have done, and he chased down his own teammate, um, who was Jock Boyer, who was off the front in 1982 in Goodwood. In the world championships they were american teammates i think they might have actually been trade teammates at the time as well and, yeah. and uh, um jock boyer had attacked with a few kilometers to go and he had a few seconds gap and it you know it kind of looked like he might it, it it wasn't a certainty that he was going to win but he he may he may have and uh greg lamond was the one who chased him down with um cerrone and sean kelly giuseppe cerrone and sean kelly in his wheel and they they did chase him down. They did catch him, and Le Mans didn't win. Cerrone passed him and, and won, won by a, a few seconds. But uh, yeah, it was I I, I guess um, yeah, just a, I suppose an interesting little tidbit that Le Mans he, maybe he was so focused on his to do list that uh, he just he didn't care about any of that, you know. And I I think they himself and Boyer clashed as characters as well for, for various reasons, but. Uh, yeah, you know the the idea of writing down that list at such a young age, and it's funny. You can actually, I can't remember his exact website, whether it's just greglemon.com or it's it's something simple anyway, greglemon something. And uh, there's a photo of this to-do list, hand scrawled on a piece of paper. I don't know whether it's real or not. He may, you know, he could have done it last week, but uh, yeah, you know, it looks genuine. And uh, it's, it's, it's this actual to-do list of these things on it. It's amazing, and and the fact that he he did pretty much all of them. Um, you know, needless to say, he ticked off the the fourth item. You know, he won the Tour de France before he was when he was twenty five, and uh, it's just just incredible. I mean, amazing tenacity and, and focus to be to to be able to write those down at while you're a teenager <laughs> to do. Well, I mean, the, chasing down Boyer, um, I think he possibly did roll Boyer. I've watched it a few times actually since I looked at these notes, and. It's one of those things where he blinked first. You know, it was clearly between him, Kelly, and Cerrone if it had been, you know, a fight without Boyer up the road. Mm. Um, and I think he just clearly thought, you know, Joe just doesn't have it. I've, I've got to take this. But it does show that behind the kind of bumbling exterior, and this comes out really well in Slaying the Badger by Richard Moore, 
he is actually a champion, and champions are egotistical maniacs. <laughs> you know, they believe they can win because you know if you don't, you won't. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that shows that is that to-do list. You know, at that young age, to actually decide you're going to do that and achieve it isn't the accident of some you know hippie cowboy who happens to wander into bike racing in Europe. It, you know, it's the action of a man who is organised, maybe not in everyday life, but in the way that it matters to achieve the results that he wants. And uh, great champion. I mean, that's and a bloody good one day rider. I'm surprised he didn't more ride. You know, win more one day. Yeah, we, we spoke about this before. Like, you know, you look you look back at you know he he didn't really apart from the worlds he didn't really win any big one day races. But you know, if you look back on the on the list of top tens finishes in in most of the classics in the in the mid 80s you know he's there all the time in 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 Paris Roubaix and and the Tour of Lombardy and and Liège Bastogne Liège you know he was a really really good one day rider like you say and he was a really good sprinter as well i remember uh, can't remember where i read the quote but it was Sean Kelly talking about um Greg LeMond and um it was after the 1989 world championships which Greg LeMond won in France and uh Kelly was talking about that because Kelly hadn't won the Worlds and it was definitely one of his, you know, certainly his biggest regret, I think, that and, and the Tour of Flanders he never won. And, you know, in 1989, it was a course that really suited him and he really, really thought, you know, this is this is it, this is this is my chance. And uh, I remember him talking with regret about that race and he said, you know, um, on a given day, I in a, in a sprint, um, I would beat Greg LeMond eight times out of ten. Which sounds like a lot, but you know, Greg LeMond is, is supposed to be a Tour de France winner, a climber, and and all that, you know. But for Kelly to admit that, you know, two times out of ten he'd lose to Greg LeMond, Sean Kelly, one of the best sprinters that around at the time, you know, that's that's significant, and uh, you know, he he did fear him slightly in a sprint, and uh, you know, with reason because he he did lose to him in 1989, and. Uh, you know, it's just maybe a weapon in Le Mans' arsenal that was that's been forgotten because of his because of his Tour de France exploits. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's one of those things where, I mean, Kelly, I, I still find it hard to believe he never won a world championship, but he he lived at a time where yeah he peaked, but he could actually be very good over you know over a, an entire season. Lamond, I think, was one of the first people... I mean, he was good throughout the season. You know, he performed really well in Roubaix a, a fair number of times, for example. But he was one of the first guys who I really felt thought, I've only got two or three good... or you know, Two or three good events throughout the year, and I'm going to absolutely make the most of them. So he would be at 100%, you know, for the World Championships, and 90% at the start of the tour, you know, so that he got stronger throughout it. Um, and he didn't expect to be great from you know February through to October, and uh, yeah, it's first of the modern era, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess it was. We, we've often talked about that before as well, and uh, you know Armstrong kind of gets blamed for for that kind of uh, tactic for shaping your season around the tour. But yeah, it kind of was Greg Lamont after maybe after his accident is when he was shot in 1987. Um, more so after that than before, he, he he did tend to really really focus his season on on just a couple of races. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you've got a Palmares and you want five jerseys and three of them are yellow and two of them are rainbow, you know, can't I, it doesn't get much better than no. that. Now I've, we're recording this at God knows what time in the morning before I go to the to the post face to work. Yeah. 
So uh, I'm I'm going to hurry it along a bit, or I'll I'll, I'll be sanctioned for being uh, for being late to the post. So our last piece is is about the man of the moment, really, um, Tyler Hamilton. In 2004, Tyler Hamilton tested positive for blood doping at the Vuelta España. Having previously been focused primarily on the Tour de France, 2004 saw Hamilton make his debut at the Vuelta for his new Fonac team. After the first week, which consisted primarily of bunch sprints and wins for Alessandro Pataki, Hamilton found himself positioned nicely in 10th place overall. Stage 8 was a 40km time trial near Valencia, which Hamilton won at an average speed of just under 51km per hour. He beat three members of his former team, US Postal, into 2nd, 3rd and 4th place, Victor Hugo Peña, Floyd Landis and Manuel Beltran. This brought Hamilton to within 32 seconds of the race lead of Landis. But in the mountain stages that followed, Hamilton lost massive chunks of time before abandoning after stage 12, complaining of stomach problems just five days after blitzing the individual time trial. Five days later again, the news broke that Hamilton had tested positive after his test showed evidence of blood doping. There had actually been two positive tests, one taken at the Olympic Games, where Hamilton had won gold in the individual time trial, and the other after he had won the stage 8 time trial of the Vuelta. Upon hearing the news of his positive test, Hamilton said the following. I'm devastated. My family, team, friends are all devastated. I've been accused of taking blood from another person. Anyone who knows me knows that it's completely impossible. I can tell you what I did and did not put into my body. Cycling is very important to me, but not that important. If I ever had to resort to doping, I'd hang the bike on the rack. I will fight this until I don't have a euro left in my pocket. And Hamilton did fight, but he ultimately lost. He was banned for two years thanks to the Vuelta positive, but he did manage to hold on to his Olympic medal because of problems with the testing procedure of the B sample from the Athens Games. After being handed his suspension after a long drawn out process, Hamilton said this, Based on my devastating personal experience over the last year and a half, I am committed to fighting for reform within the anti-doping movement. I do support the anti-doping mission and USADA, however the current system has failed an innocent athlete and needs to change. Out of respect to fairness and the rights of all athletes, there should be clear separation between the agencies that develop new tests and those that adjudicate anti-doping cases. Credible independent experts, not those who funded or developed the original methodology, should be charged with properly validating new tests. I don't believe any athlete should be subjected to a flawed test or charged with a doping violation through the use of a method that is not fully validated or generates fluctuating results. I will also continue to support the formation of unions to help protect the rights of athletes. My goal is to keep other athletes from experiencing the enormous pain and horrendous toll of being wrongly accused. In May of last year, Hamilton finally confessed to doping his way through most of his career. He was compelled to do so as part of the US federal investigation into the US postal team. He later appeared on the show 60 Minutes where he aired some of his confessional. Most recently, extracts of his soon-to-be-released book, The Secret Race, have been leaked and provide even more detail of Hamilton's doping during his time as a professional cyclist. The Secret Race? Um, I don't think I've ever read a book that... Uh, there was a lot in it that I already knew. I mean, let's be blunt, but it tied so many things together that I briefly considered turning my back on professional cycling and, and podcasting about it. It's just a, it's a, it's a bombshell. That's, that's all I've got to say. Yeah, like I, I, I know I said in the piece, the the piece that we, uh, we actually recorded that a couple of weeks ago. So I mean, it's obviously been released now, and and people have read it, but uh, I, I actually haven't read it yet. I'm um, an uncle of mine is over at Interbike, 
and he's uh, he's bought me a copy of the American one, which is slightly slightly dirtier, I, I believe. Slightly juicier, yeah. There's <laughs> there's apparently some libel laws in the UK that means the ones that we get are going to be um, slightly nicer. But I mean, very minor, very minor adjustments, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've anyway, I've just decided to wait and get my hands on the American one. So I, I've yet to read it, but um, yeah, uh, I, I, like I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, again, again, just going back to reactions that I can't understand. Like I, I can't understand how people can read these books and still think Armstrong is a hero. I, I can't understand the reaction of some people that they don't, that they're refusing to read this book. I, I. I you know, f- f- um, based on the the based on the principle that oh, where where's where's the profits for this book going? Why should Tyler Hamilton write a book? You know, wh- why should Tyler Hamilton deserve to gain profit from telling this story? Which is yeah, you know, I I I I, I can't understand that. You you I, I think as cycling fans, you need to read these things. You can't just dismiss them. Based on some fic of financial reason, you you need to read this. You need to inform yourself and and know what these guys have done and what these guys have said. Like you, you can't just ignore this because you don't like it. I don't think. No, and, I, I think you'd be a hypocrite if you did. Yeah, and and like I, I I don't know how you feel about. There's a journalist called Brendan Gallagher. He he's on Twitter, and I I had a I had a few Twitters back and forth with him there about this and he he had that opinion you know he said oh you know why now why 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 didn't he write this 10 years ago and you know you know where's the profits for this book on yada 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 well like if you sat back and thought about it you know of course he couldn't write this book 10 years ago just that the whole there's been a shift in 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 public opinion you know just general attitudes the the, this whole omerta is is you know, it, it's still rife, but it's crumbling slightly. Mm. And you know, the the whole federal investigation, you know, all of the confessions that that brought out in people. You know, of course he couldn't write this book ten years ago. And the fact that he's writing it now, you know, wh- wh- why isn't Brendan Gallagher asking what happened to the profits with Armstrong's books? You know, like, did he give all that to Live Livestrong? I don't think he did. No, you know Armstrong's been stripped of titles now. Well, kind of. You know why isn't Brendan Gallagher asking about the profits of Armstrong's books? You know what's the difference? But 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 anyway, I I you know I really and and he said he's not going to read it. Which as a cycling journalist, I just I find baffling. How can how can you write? How can he sit down now next week and write a story about Armstrong or? You know the UCI or Pat McCoy or anybody without having read this. It's it's madness. It's part of his job. I just like you know it's it's mind-boggling to me how he can decide not to read it. Hey, it's but... too early in the morning to get this heated, man. <laughs> calm down, calm down. <laughs> yeah, of course, right. Because what, I mean, information's information. You know, whether it profits somebody is is a backstory that's interesting, but it doesn't detract from the fact that you need to be informed. Yeah. Well, well, says me sitting here having not read it. <laughs> but, no, I, I do fully plan on reading it. But there's one thing in it, I, I believe anyway, that um, kind of struck me as uh, unusual, and and that that is that I I, I think that um, Hamilton maintains that he didn't um, didn't transfuse blood when he tested positive for that. Is that right? Um, 
I actually can't remember, so we better edit or, that. Or he you? didn't. He said he didn't try because he tested positive for uh, someone else's blood. Let's start that wee bit again, and I'll edit that bit out. Sorry. If you start from there's an interesting bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You go for it now. Yep. Okay. So I, I believe there's an interesting thing in the book that where Hamilton says that he he maintains that he didn't test positive for a blood transfusion. The one, the, the I, I can the blood transfusion with somebody else's blood in your body that he didn't actually do that before the race, even though he tested positive for it. That's well, true. The interesting thing as well is that Landis always maintains that he never took the synthetic testosterone on the stage to Morsine. I know, and, and, and if you put that together with, um, again, another confession that I believe is in Hamilton's book, is that uh, Armstrong snitched on him to the UCI after he had left the US Postal. He inf- Armstrong informed UCI that Hamilton was up to no good, yeah, and that Landis was actually the one that told Hamilton this during a race that Armstrong had stitched him up. Yeah, it's completely true. I mean, what it, what that leads to, and I mean, what came very strongly out of this book, and what turned me into. I mean, at one point, genuinely, I thought about turning away, and it wasn't actually the writers, you know, because I still quite like Tyler Hamilton, and I've always said we need to look deeper than just the rider who tests positive, you know, to the structure that allows him or you know aids him to to dope in the first place. But the thing that really annoyed me is the complicity of the UCI. And that's all over this book. You know, yeah. from um, tests being surprising, you know, like Landis testing for something that uh, he never took. And yeah. he's admitted he doped. Why would he lie about that? Yeah, there's no, there's absolutely no reason. You know, and, you know talks about UCI warning for tests, um, UCI covering up tests, famously, you know, the, the to the Swiss one. Um, it indicates to me that there's far more than, you, you know, US Postal being really clever about doping. There's actively, from Eagle, there's a culture of, we have teams that we will protect. And, 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 that's, and that's, going back to Paul Kimmich, that's something that he has always said is the most alarming thing. It's the biggest problem. You know, obviously he's had his altercations with Armstrong and, and you know, people kind of think as Paul Kimmich is this anti-Armstrong body or, you know, anti-Armstrong person. But, you know, really, he, he wants to get to the root of this. And as he has said recently, you know, Armstrong is just a symptom. He, he's not the cause. And and that the cause is the UCI. And that there's a much, much bigger disease going on in the sport than Lance Armstrong at the moment. And that, like you say, and this is this is the most worrying thing. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting point that you raised in the notes is that... Um... And it's it's making me think think again about you know the the fact that people test positive after they leave US postal. Now, we didn't have um you know, you've listed Fuyu Lee and Frank Schleck as people who've tested positive under Brunel's wing, if you like. They're the only people I could think of. Yeah, and I, I, I I was much the same. So I've actually started there's there's two sides to this argument in my head. One is US Postal had so much money and were so organised, and Hamilton says, you know, they were two years ahead of any other team, which put them well ahead of the testers, um, that they didn't test positive because, you know, they had the most sophisticated doping regime. But the flip side, and what's coming out as, you know, the UCI complicity becomes part of the discussion, is that maybe they don't test positive because Brunel's riders are protected. 
you know, yeah. and they're not doing anything different at Phonak, for example, where there's a shed load of money, you know, or at CSC where you know you've, uh, Reese is allegedly working with uh, Fuentes, and again, there's you know the, there's a fair bit of organisation. Part of that equation may be that the UCI, you know, Bruniel and Armstrong are just you know the golden twins and can't be allowed to fail. And look, I mean, it, which is. Why it's also baffling why Bruniel has decided to go to arbitration with his side of the the USADA um, investigation. You know Armstrong has 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 admitted guilt by inaction, but Bruniel hasn't. So Bruniel, you, you know, Br- Bruniel is going to be in a courtroom. Scott and I discussed this in the show, um, and I mean, it's. Essentially, Bruniel going for arbitration gives Armstrong two months to change the conversation. Um, you know, to, to to if he'd sat in a courtroom and been faced by George Hincapie, saying, you know, look, we kept that in this fridge and we did that, that would have raised his reputation to the ground. But by Bruniel waiting, and that means the information can't be released, you know, properly. Yeah. Armstrong gets the chance to you know to turn it into I did what I had to do to beat the dirty Euros and look at me I'm I'm cancer Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I may not, he may not be that sophisticated, but uh, I think I, I don't think we're finished yet. I think we're going to see some more twists and turns and some uh, some jiggery pokery before Bruniel sits in that arbitration room. Well, you see, I think it's kind of gone beyond the. I don't think Armstrong is going to be able to bat this down with PR nonsense the way he has for the last 20 years, essentially. You know, I think it's gone beyond that. People are p- people are seeing through it now more than ever. There's just too much evidence. There's just too much talk. There's too many articles being written. Armstrong and his PR wagon, I, I think, I don't, I just think it's come to the end of the line. I don't think he's going to be able to 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 do it anymore, and uh, you know, and, and I think that's uh, like he he tried to do it when 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 he admitted to. He, I mean, Armstrong admitted to doping by not challenging this in court. That is an admission. If somebody comes up to me and says, "We think you know we have evidence that you murdered a woman," and I say, well, <laughs> "I'm not going to fight that." That's an admission. Yeah. So Armstrong has admitted to this, and he tried to to wrap it up in a PR, point the finger at everybody else. See, for me, though, the argument now isn't about saving his, his reputation in cycling. Although I'm really disturbed at how many of the current pelotons still regard him as, uh, you know, a hero. I was really pissed off at Matty Breschel calling Tyler Hamilton an idiot last week, for example. Yeah, but I think he's aiming now for the Great American Unwashed. Who can still provide him with, you know, a decent income and and some heritage? So, it's in, I mean, I, we're at a pivotal point in this, but it's by no means finished. I mean, the next six months is going to be absolutely fascinating. And and like Ham, Hamilton himself said in an interview after he he wrote his book, I mean, he said he he wants Armstrong to come clean, and if Armstrong comes clean, he'll feel a whole lot better. He might be a a whole lot worse off financially, but he'll feel a whole lot better the way Hamilton does himself now. He feels absolved, and you know, ultimately that's down to Armstrong. And you know, he he he'll probably. I can't see it happening. I don't think we're ever going to get a Marion Jones moment. No, I don't think so either. Anyway, I need to go to work. Okay. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to bring this to to a close. Um, we've. 
we've concentrated on, on stuff that happened while we were away, largely because we've tried to record this show a number of times and uh, got you know got parts of it done or or not sat down. But you know we're back, and what we'll do is a wee bonus and as a as a, as a way of saying sorry for not being here is we'll leave you with Killian talking about the 1956 edition of the Giro de Lombardia. In 1956, Andre Daragad narrowly defeated Fausto Coppi to win the Tour of Lombardy. By the autumn of 1956, Daragad had won a stage each in three separate editions of the Tour de France and was already established as a feared sprinter in the bunch. But the 27-year-old Frenchman had yet to win one of cycling's big one-day races. Fausto Coppi, on the other hand, was 10 years older than Daragat, had already won the Tour of Lombardy five times and was approaching the end of his career. The previous year, Daragat had been riding for the La Perle team alongside Jacques Anquetil, but shortly before the World Road Race that year, it became apparent that none of the team's riders had been paid since April because the sponsor was bankrupt. At the Worlds themselves in 1955, Fausto Coppi's Bianchi team manager approached both Anquetil and Daragad and asked them to join Coppi's team for the following year. When news of this reached the president of the French Cycling Federation, he forbade the French duo from joining Coppi's team before the Worlds road race for fear that they would ride to help the ageing Italian win the rainbow jersey instead of riding for France. Daragad would eventually sign a contract with Bianchi at the end of the year. Meanwhile, due to a case of typhus fever and a broken collarbone, Coppi was sacked by his Bianchi team for breaching his contract and he was forced to set up his own team. So at the Tour of Lombardy of 1956, Daragad was riding for Bianchi as Coppi had planned, but Coppi wasn't. As the race unfolded, Coppi made it into what appeared to be the winning breakaway with another Bianchi rider, Diego Ronchini. But it was another Italian who was to play the most significant role that day. Fiorenzo Magni. Magni was a triple Giro d'Italia winner and a great rival of Coppi's, who was also approaching the end of his career. Magni and his wife were friends with the Coppi's, so the decision that Fausto Coppi took in running off with his mistress, Julia Occhini, was something that Magni did not approve of. Magni was part of the chase group behind Coppi, which also included Daragat. A following race car approached the chase group. Occhini herself, the woman in white as she was known, shouted from the car at Magni, Hey, Firenzo, my Fausto has got you, accompanied by the most Italian of insulting gestures. Magni was not impressed. He said about his reaction to those provocative words, I sunk my teeth into my handlebars to the point where I lost any awareness of being alive. Ronchini was not working with Coppi up front, as he knew his teammate Daragat was behind, being led by the possessed Magni, who single-handedly reeled in Coppi to deny him a swan song victory in his signature race. But Coppi, to his credit, still almost beat everyone in the sprint, but was beaten to the line at the Vigorelli Velodrome by half a wheel by the lightning-fast Daragat. Afterward, Coppi's career spiralled into decline, a direction it was probably headed already. Daragat, on the other hand, would go on to win a staggering 22 stages of the Tour de France, along with the World Road Race Championships. Despite a massive amount of sprint wins, Daragat describes how he beat Coppi at the 1956 Tour of Lombardy as the most beautiful sprint of his career. (laughs) 